the whole series we've been looking at is, we kind of called it a bit irreverently, best supporting actor, because a lot of these people aren't so prominent in the Bible. Uh, being the first one to send these out, I got the pick of the ones. I really wanted to do Thomas, because Thomas, the more I read about Thomas, the more I identify with him. I'll go into that a little bit later. Now, one or two of the early slides may offend one or two of you, okay? So I'm just warning you, forgive me now, but by the end of it, I should have offended everybody. So, <laughs> we'll have a quick look at Thomas first, who he is. The Bible doesn't tell us a huge amount about him. There's a lot of different images through the years of people, what Thomas looked, at, looked like, but we don't know because we're not given any description about him at all in the Bible. Thomas means twin in Aramaic. It's a derivative of uh, that. But so does Didymus, because in the Bible he's known as Thomas, or Didymus, or Thomas Didymus, which is a bit funny because he'd been twin twin. Oh, he's one of the 12 chosen by Jesus at the beginning of his ministry in Galilee. So, and we, so we, we pretty much guess that he was a Galilean. His name is Aramaic, Thomas, is, um, or comes from the, 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 uh, the Aramaic. He, he was called Judas Thomas by the Syrian um, Christians. So it means that he was, um, uh, there were three Judases in Jesus' disciples. There was uh, Judas, the son of James, Judas Iscariot, of course, who betrayed him. And Thomas himself was called Judas. But when we get the list of the uh, different apostles that Jesus called out of his disciples, Thomas is just listed as Thomas, the twin. The twin. We don't know whose twin he was. There is a tradition, though not proven at all, that he may have been a twin of Jesus or a twin of Jesus' brother. You know, but I think that's perhaps a little bit wishful thinking. It's not really substantiated by any outside evidence other than the person who wrote it um, hundreds of years later. Thomas's subsequent history after the beginning of the Book of Acts is uncertain. We see him right at the beginning of the Acts, and then we don't hear of him again. We know he's there with the other disciples, but we don't see him again. But according to uh, in the 4th century, so 300 and odd, whatever, ecclesiastical history of Eusebius, the early church father, he evangelised Parthia, which is mostly now within Afghanistan. And later Christian tradition says that Thomas went all the way to India, where he was subsequently martyred. And he's recognised as the founder of the church of the Syrian Malabar Christians, who to this day call themselves Thomas Christians or Christians of St Thomas. Now, it might sound like a little bit I'm going off track here, but there is a reason. Some of you may have noticed over the years that I don't come from around here. I love being here. This is my home. I love Gillingham, and Gillingham comes first. But I was born and bred, amazingly, you and brought up in, um, in, in Liverpool. Well, we weren't conscious of it in Liverpool at the time, and I don't think it was there when I was younger. But over the years, particularly since the kind of 80s, and to some extent we brought that upon ourselves, notice that sometimes there's a bit of prejudice, sometimes a few jokes that go around. Now, we used to do it about Irish people, but that's kind of illegal now. So it's fair game on Scousers. So you get all kinds of different stuff coming up. So a few things I just pulled out of the press and other things um, off the internet. So the definition of a Scouser, I'm going to call it Scousers. Um, people know why Liverpoolians call themselves Scousers? Yeah. Or they don't usually, other people do, but um, we usually call one another Alar or something like that. 
It's a fruit. It's a stew. stew. It's originally Norwegian seamen lobscouse, it's called. And uh, it's like a stew, but it's usually lamb or beef or what was left over from Sunday. It's a Monday meal. Uh, yeah, and if you've got no meat in it, which sometimes we didn't have because we didn't have enough money, it's called a blind scouse, okay? And that's not a person who can't see who's from Liverpool. Uh, that's something you eat. Uh, the, the definition, uh, albeit it's in the Urban Dictionary, is the nice ones are really nice, i.e. very friendly and chatty. Uh, like to take the mickey out of all and sundry, that's very true. Uh, as honest and trustworthy as the day is long. The bad ones are quite possibly the most irritating people ever met, with large chips on their shoulder who whinge a lot and can't be trusted as far as they can be thrown. Visitors from other, visitors from other countries and from the UK can generally not always understand Scousers with strong accents. Well, I know that because when we first came down here, I speak about half the speed I used to speak, and people would stop me and say, that was a great sermon, what was it about? I didn't understand half of that. Can you just, can I, can I borrow your notes and things like this? Along with the other insults that generally come with it. This one particularly caught my eye. This was, um, Scousers have the least intelligent and least trustworthy accent, while Devonians uh, have the, the, uh, the, the friendliest. Anyone from Devon here? Oh, Oh, yeah, don't jump on the bandwagon. Yeah. yeah. ITV's Tonight programme polled 4,000 Britons about their preferred accents. It's, by the way, this is from the Daily Mail. I know some of you read the Daily Mail. I'm not going to criticise it, but house prices are stable at the moment, so don't worry. Um, that's why they had to pick on the Scousers, because they didn't have anything about house prices. It's one of the most distinctive and recognisable accents in the UK, because it's great. And now research has found that Scouse is also considered to sound the least intelligent, least friendly, and least trustworthy in the whole country. And, and by implication, so are the people. An investigation hmm. for, tonight's, for ITV's Tonight programme found there is a social stigma and snobbery towards particular regional accents, with the Scouse accent bearing the worst across all categories, and one in five Brits admitting to being discriminated against because of how they talk. Okay? Then you get the usual jokes. I'll run through those very briefly, just to put us in the mood. Scouser walks in a job centre. Only kidding. <laughs> How do you make a Scouser run faster? Put a DVD player under his arm. What do you call a Scouser in a university? The caretaker. What do you say to a Scouser in uniform? Big Mac and fries, please. And finally, what do you call a Scouser in a white shell suit? The bride. Okay. I missed out the obvious one. There's what you want to call the Scouser in a suit, which is the accused. Um, or, the, or the defendant. And then uh, a little cartoon picked out, Scousers react to the latest government back-to-work scheme. Yeah. And finally, you can get the Pocket Scouser app. And you can't read it, but it's got all kinds of different little things, and it'll, it'll say, calm down, and things like this. And so there's a kind of prejudice that comes out. Now, that's my, this might sound a bit off the wall, but when I started to read about Galileans, of which Thomas was one, they had exactly the same problem. All right, they didn't have shell suits, and they didn't, uh, but they were, they, were, they were counted as villains, not quite part of the rest of us, and they had funny accents. Racially, the area of the former northern kingdom, Israel, had um, been under other people's conquest for more than well, since the 10th century BC. And so the cultures and different influences they'd have were completely different to the Judean, the southern kingdom. Sort of, um, they had a lot of mixed population, a lot of mixture with Greek influences and things like that. Um, places like Nazareth and Capernaum were counted as not quite, you know, not quite right 
and they're, they're Bolshe lot up there anyway. Geographically, Galilee was separated from Judea by the non-Jewish territory of Samaria. So you got to Samaria, then you got to Galilee. And you know what the Jews thought about the Samaritans? Um, so the Galileans, though they were Jewish, dodgy lot, don't leave your chariot there, you'll find it on two bricks. Politically, Galilee had been under separate administration, as I said, since the 10th century BC. Economically, Galilee actually was good farming land, good fishing in the, uh, in the lakes and in the sea of, uh, sea of Galilee. And there was a kind of, you know, northern powerhouse thing. Um, culturally, the Jews actually despised the people from that part of the country. They counted them as not being sophisticated enough. They weren't, didn't have the, uh, you know, the kind of um, posh Jerusalem way of speaking and the culture and all that kind of thing. They were rough people, those northerners. Linguistically, they spoke a distinctive form of Aramaic with slovenly consonants. And you know what? They missed their H's out. That's fantastic. And religiously, again, they were a bit lax. They didn't always turn up to the synagogue. And they certainly didn't turn up on time. But then, we all know about that, don't we? All right, so I would like to make a nomination. The nomination for the best supporting act is, uh, is Thomas. Okay, in my, my, my humble opinion, of all the other different people that we've heard of so far, um, he is the one. However, I would like to add another nomination to that, which is I would like him to, uh, to sorry, nominate him for the best honorary scouser in the Bible because he had all the different attributes. I say, I really found that I identify with the guy. I found that he kind of comes from a place which is kind of sticks out a bit. Don't quite like him kind of love him or hate him. And he was, had all these kind of different things that happened. So the first thing was, he was misunderstood. Doubting Thomas, he was referred to as earlier. I think that is a real slight on the man. It only actually came in, in the 17th century, the doubting Thomas bit. Up to that point, there's no real trace of people calling him doubting Thomas. He was just Thomas, St. Thomas, whatever. So he was misunderstood. So a doubting Thomas, it says in the Oxford English Dictionary, is a person who uh, is... Skeptical and refuses to believe something without proof. Well, we'll have a look at that. If you like to look at the scripture, it's uh, in John 20. We'll look at the first part because there's a two-part story, this one. And this is the main kind of uh, scripture that Thomas is remembered for. Though there are several others we'll just have a quick look at later on. On the evening of the first day, verse 19 of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. This is after Jesus has been resurrected, okay? Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now notice, he showed them his hands and side when he came. I said, yeah, it's definitely the Lord. He gave them proof. Unfortunately, Thomas had gone out for a takeaway and wasn't there. And some of those kebab shops can leave you waiting in queues for ages. Oh, sorry, just say, and, and Jesus said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, by the way, as you guys could, I will not believe. 
Sorry? Just not believing. When we look at scriptures, when we look through the Bible, and if we're honest with ourselves, we all have doubts about things at different times. And I think that's what Thomas was doing. I think there were two things Thomas was doing. First of all, he's saying, do you know, that's a bit far-fetched. I can't believe that. I can't believe it without some definite proof. I, I want to be there. I want to see it. You can see it in all sorts of different things. I find myself sometimes being a bit sceptical about certain healings that are claimed or certain angel feathers or gold dust that flies about. And then somehow there's no proof of it, but people are still quoting it as if it's from the Lord. Now, I have been in meetings where I know people have been healed. I've seen them being healed. I know they walked in dragging a leg and they walked out dancing. And they stayed that way. I've received healing myself. My wife has received healing. I've seen it all over the place. We've seen healings here. We've seen that. We know that happens. We know that afterwards the person doesn't get sick again. Or if they get sick of something else or whatever. But we've seen it happen and we've seen it with our own eyes. But sometimes things are claimed that God is moving in some way or whatever. And there's no evidence of it. There is no lasting thing. And it's hard sometimes not to be cynical. I think sometimes you can be doubting about things. But when it spills over into cynicism, it's kind of starting to become something where, oh yeah, okay, yeah, sure. There's unbelief rather than just Doubting. You see, unbelief is the opposite to doubt. Unbelief is a deliberate decision to say, I won't believe. Whereas doubt is where, I'm sorry, I can't stretch my faith that far at the present time. Sometimes it's, I'd love to. So if we look at another story, which we've quoted actually fairly recently, in Mark chapter 9, verse 23 to 24. The story is a man brings his son to Jesus and he keeps throwing himself in the flames. He's got some kind of uh, demonic sort of uh, attachment that is causing him to want to harm himself. And the father's absolutely distraught. And he comes to Jesus' disciples and they're praying and they can't do anything about it. And Jesus tells them, you haven't got enough faith, guys, in this case. And then he says, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, sorry, this verse always gets me. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. We've all been there. Haven't we been there? I do believe, I do want this person to be healed so much. But I can't quite see it. Lord, give me the faith. And if we have faith as a mustard seed, he says, he'll do the rest. Everybody wrestles with doubt. Failure, inconsistency, and hypocrisy even. We do sometimes... We want to put on a show and say, yeah, I'm fine, I'm okay, or I'm a good Christian, and yet we know we've not done too well that day or that week. Doubts. Doubts are being honest about where we are in our walk with God. They're not something which is a 
faith destroyer. Doubts actually build our faith if we have the right attitude. I want to believe, the man said. I really want to believe. But somehow, my experience, my, my life, my, my whatever is restraining me, my own sin even or whatever, it just stops me. Help me, Lord. And you know what? He will. He's full of mercy. The real issue is unbelief, as I said before, a conscious refusal to believe. That's not having doubts. That is saying, I'm just not considering believing. That's the atheistic, that's the anti-Christian, the anti-Christ view. Some people have agnostic views, which, if they're truly held, they have doubts. A lot of people have doubts before they become Christians. Alfred Lord Tennyson says, or said, there lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. Think about it. We can state a creed really, really, no, it's very down the line. It says, I believe in this, that, the other. We can say it off by heart. We can say it without even believing a word of it, actually. We can say it automatically. I know we do believe what we say. But sometimes we, that belief doesn't quite translate into our actions. And it says, honest doubt, there's more belief in that because it's exploring. It's saying, well, come on, I need to see this. I want to go and see these healings. I want to go and find out what is actually happening. I want to find out what is hysteria and what is really, truly from God. And I think that we'll find more and more things in our day-to-day lives which are from God. We start to touch the supernatural, but not in some fanciful way that just vanishes when we get to it, but in a real and honest way and in the day, way we wrestle with our doubts. And that's all I believe that Thomas was doing. I don't want to call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas, Thomas. I want to call him Honest Thomas. Honest Thomas. Say that six times fast. Okay. The second thing was, Thomas was actually obeying the Lord. Jesus tells the disciples right near the end of Matthew's, Matthew, Matthew's, Matthew, just before he gets crucified, this. He tells all the disciples, including presumably Thomas. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you in advance. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or, here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Put that together with what Thomas said. He went to the inner room where they were all hiding. And said, oh, Jesus has been here. The Messiah has been back. Don't believe it. He warned us about this. Anyway, once his doubts were dealt with, Thomas believed wholeheartedly. So back to John 20, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Uh, Though the door was locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, 
Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. He didn't need to touch him. He was there. He knew Jesus. He'd been with him for three years. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So that's good. That covers us. We're okay. And we have seen. We've seen the things. We've seen the wonderful things Jesus has done. We work by experience. We don't believe in some myth. We've seen it. We've exercised faith. And the more we exercise faith, the more we see it. The more we live in the day-to-day reality of what Jesus has done and where we are with him. Okay, just to show you briefly, uh, they were discriminated against the, uh, the guys from Galilee. I've got a selection of scriptures here. I just want to make the point again that it was hard for the disciples. It was hard for Jesus. Different people, different scriptures, even themselves saying stuff. And they would stick out like a sore thumb in and around Jerusalem, in Judea, because of their accents, because of their ways, because of the way they dressed, because of their lack of sophistication. Most of them were manual labourers, fishermen, and there was a couple of tax collectors, the odd zealot, um, but we don't know what he was doing as well. So, you know, but they were you know, a bunch of guys from up north and rabble-rousing, getting crowds going. Also, there was a lot of rebellion came from that part of the country as well, which had to be put down. I've just got a selection of scriptures. I haven't got all of them. When uh, some of them, when, when Peter was standing um, outside the temple when Jesus was being tried. Mark 14, uh, again, he denied it after a little while. Those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. You stand out. Nathaniel, when um, Nicodemus was talking to them or talking to the Sanhedrin, we heard about Nicodemus last week, Nazareth, which is right in the heart of, uh, of, of, of Galilee, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Nathaniel was a very learned man. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without, fear, without hearing him to find out what he's been doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. The prejudice is almost palpable. Utterly amazed, Acts 2.7. They asked, aren't these who are speaking from Galilee? No, they can't. They're not clever enough to speak to us in Jerusalem here. And then in Acts 5 it says, after him, Judas the Galilean appeared. This is Paul giving an account of what happened about the rebellion part, the rebellious part of Galilee. Judas the Galilean appeared, that is not Thomas, in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. So it's a rebellious place. It's a place where it was quite militant. It was um, despised by a lot of the other people. They tended to distrust them. They didn't like the people from Galilee. So there was some discrimination going on there. Now moving on. Another story around Thomas. There are only two others, really, where you hear from Thomas. Um, And I like the way that he asked the awkward question. Because everyone is just going along, and Jesus is talking and everything. And Thomas goes, hey, hang on a minute. Um, Just ask something. You know, whereas everybody else is sitting there going, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm." 
And maybe it's not going in, or maybe they're thinking, oh, I'm not sure, I don't know about that, but I better not say anything, because you know, other people might um, I think I'm stupid. So John 14, verse 1, it says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there? To, would I not, if it was not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. They're all sitting there, and Thomas says, um, excuse me. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Actually, a perfectly legitimate question. But no one else asked it. It's interesting. When we've been through this series, have you noticed the different people that have just piped up and said something, like Martha, um, would say something, and then you get some of the most famous verses in the Bible. And this is one of them. And Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he goes on to explain a bit more. Wouldn't have got that if Thomas hadn't stood up and wanted to or risk looking stupid or being perhaps just plain. Maybe he was just a bit awkward as well. And I like that. He kind of, hey, hang on, no, come on. And all the others, oh, Thomas again. Thomas, just listen to the man, you know? But sometimes we need to clarify things. I love it when someone asks me a question. I get people texting me with questions sometimes. I say, what's it say in the Bible about this? Or I've read this in the Bible, can you explain that? And sometimes I can, and sometimes I go and ask things. You know, I, I do, I get a few people. That's not, I don't want to get 20 texts this afternoon from you, all right? But so, there's other more learned people than me, so just ask them, you know. Are you okay with that? They all text you this afternoon, not doing anything. It's not a lack of faith to ask questions about what is real or true and what isn't. It's not a lack of faith to question things. It's the attitude you do it with that's important. You know? And sometimes, I know, my friends and past, even me occasionally, from Liverpool, we do have a bit of an attitude. And we do sometimes say things like, or we sometimes just ask a question because we're being awkward, to be honest. But that's just part of the way we were brought up. And sometimes we bring things upon ourselves. But it's good to ask a question not to be awkward, isn't it? Just to ask a question, to, to genuinely inquire and to be sometimes a little bit persistent, a little bit, well, not rude, but, you know, sometimes we can put a veneer across things and someone's saying something from the front and you go, well, I've varied actually from, well, that's a load of rubbish, to I don't quite understand that. Sometimes we need to ask questions. You might want to come and ask me a question later. And you know, if you want to take it outside, we'll do that. Yeah. It says, Matthew, we know these verses, Matthew 7, 8, everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. We are encouraged to ask questions, to be sure of what we put our faith in. You know, I've said this before. The song is, Jesus wants me for a sunbeam, not Jesus wants me for a moron, okay? He wants us to understand with our heads as well as our hearts. He wants us to study, to know him better. You do, don't you? You, know, you, you, you? 
you find out about things. You know, if I want to know about someone, I'll go on the internet, I'll find out things, and I'll go and read books about them and, and whatever. I'll find out about Jesus. I'll find out about what's in the Bible. Because I love it, and I love Jesus, and I want to know more about him, you know? When I fell in love with Han, I used to go around and ask her mates, what you like? That didn't put me off. And, uh, what, what, and uh, no, she was great. And, and, and I thought, oh, I like her, she's feisty. She's not like the others, you know, and everything. And, 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 and so I'd go around and find out more about her, go around to her house, and then sit down and say to her mum and dad, oh, she's like when she's a baby, you know, and all this. And oh, shut up, you know. You know. Uh, all that sort of thing. You want to know. You want to know, and that's what we want to know. And it's a genuine question, and it's not about, it's done out of love, it's not done out of, you know, Ah, I'm going to try and trip you up. <laughs> Again, attitude. And I think that Thomas had the right attitude. He was probably born the way he was to be a little bit like that. But if there was an elephant in the room, he'd say it. The other thing is, I remember being in a meeting once and this woman started shouting at me only because I'd asked a stupid question. No, I hadn't asked a stupid question. I'd asked an obvious question. But she said to me, blind faith is what you want. Blind faith, that's what we should have. Do you know what? Blind faith is a total misnomer or whatever it is, tortism or... It just doesn't exist. Faith has to be in something. You don't have blind faith. Okay, you can trust, but you trust in something. You can trust not knowing the full story. You can trust Jesus. We can trust Jesus for lots of different things. We can trust the Lord. We can, we can trust other people because we know them. But we know them. We're trusting them. We're trusting in something or somebody. We're not actually just trusting in faith. Faith in faith is just ridiculous. So if anyone comes to say, we've got to have blind faith, either we need to qualify that and just say, well, you know, actually we've got faith in something or you must have faith in something. Or if they're just saying blind faith, in other words, let's just carry on and hope for the best. That's not what it's about. It's like you're very upset. You've got to have blind faith. Mm. You know what? Anyway, we left it, but it, it sticks in my mind because it was so, so, she was so sure we've got to have blind faith. And I could never get to the bottom of it because she was so upset that she didn't, she didn't actually explain if she had faith in anything or she was just having faith in hoping for the best. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Make every effort to know your calling and election. In other words, get to know your faith. Get to know what it's about. Don't be swayed when somebody comes along and says, no, actually the angel feathers were just pigeons caught up in the air conditioning. And that's a true story. And you go, oh no, my faith is dead. No, because that happens. Not maybe like that, but people will rely on things or whatever. Our faith is in Jesus. Get to know him. Our faith is in the Lord. Our faith is in the things he's done and the things he's going to do. We have faith in him, not in some frivolous thing or something which may or may not have happened and if it didn't happen. But people used to say, if Jesus is, if they discover life on other planets, my faith is just going to die. And I think... So what? Maybe they need saving, maybe they don't. Maybe they're still perfect. C.S. Lewis in Out of the, out of the Silent Planet, 
that the, it was, uh, only the earth was quiet, all the rest of creation was singing. I know it's fiction, but it's a great illustration. All the rest of creation was singing, but they didn't need saving. It was the, on the earth that sin had taken place, and that's where... So maybe that's the case. Or maybe, as Larry Norman said, if there's life on other planets, well, I'm sure he's been there too. It's God's creation. If it needs saving, he'll save it. He's fair. He's a righteous, trustworthy God. Oh, these things, you know, that's fine. And if they come down from outer space and they all blast us to pieces, I watch too much science fiction, by the way, we'll just get to see him soon now. Okay. So, last one. Being real and true. Thomas, when they were going to, um, they were arguing a bit about going back to see Lazarus, okay? And Jesus going back to see Lazarus. You know what's going to happen here? We're all going to die. Anyway, Thomas, I like it here because you can take this several ways, but I'm taking it the way I want to take it. And if you think differently, that's fine. But being real and true. So when they heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed, uh, Jesus stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to the disciples, right, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews were there and they tried to stone you. And yet you're going back. Bit more story. Then back down to verse 14. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Because they thought when he said Lazarus is asleep, they kind of went with it. And said, oh, he's only sleeping. Why are we going back? Lazarus is dead. Okay. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. So that you may believe. Let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, and I love this. Oh, let's go with him. We can all die. It's kind of like, like he might have said, let's go. We'll all die with him. If he's going to die, we want to die with him. But he's kind of like, hmm, let's go. I suppose, you know, we can all die with him. Touch of sarcasm, maybe a little bit of cynicism. I don't know. But I like to think maybe he was, because it kind of makes him a bit more real to me. And I'd probably have said that. But he went. He might have been part of that argument, saying, Oh, Lord, we don't want to go. He might have been. I don't know. Said They said they tried to dissuade him. But in the end, it was him that turned the tide. And he said, come on, guys. We'll go. And we'll die with him if we have to. We've come this far. Let's go. Been nearly three years. We know who he is. Let's do it. So they went. So Thomas may have questioned going to Judea with the rest of them. It may have been a bit ironic or sarcastic, I said. Yeah. Irony is posh southern for sarcasm, by the way. But he was true to Jesus and did initiate them going back. However he got there, he did the right thing. And we all have different ways of going about. Some of us take longer, some of us take shorter, some of us have to struggle a bit. Some of us just say, yeah, okay. We're all different. But we get there if our attitude's right. In Genesis 4-7, when the Lord's talking to Adam, he said, uh, sorry, to Cain. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And that's still the same. We have to have the right attitude, and we have to, no matter how we get there, do what's right. And finally, I'd just like to look at this last one, two scriptures, which to me show how loyal and faithful Thomas was. So if we look at John 21 and verses 1 to 3, this is after 
Jesus um, resurrected. It said, afterwards, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. So seven of them. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, ah, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. And you know the rest of the story about Jesus appearing and then showing fish. He was there. Jesus had died and risen, told them to go back to Galilee. And whether they were all there or not, there were seven of them. And they were together. And Thomas was with them. That's all. He was faithful. He was loyal. He stuck with it. And you know, I'm not blowing the trumpet again. I again, again have a real empathy, empathy with that because I know in Liverpool, everybody thinks it's the best city in the world. In fact, someone once said to me, it's the best city in the world. You'll always hear people from Liverpool say how great that is. It's a wonderful city. He said, but those who live outside Liverpool would never go back. And then the other verse here, which is from Acts. And this is at the time of Pentecost. And then the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. That's about just under a kilometre, actually. That was all the, the Sabbath day's walk was. So when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas, son of James. So they were there. And the 11 of them, that were left after Judas Iscariot had betrayed Jesus and died. But Thomas was there. Thomas was there every step of the way. He was there when Jesus rose. He was there when Jesus came to them, albeit one time he was a little bit later than the others. He was there after the Holy Spirit or when the Holy Spirit came. And then we don't hear anything more of him. I'm really looking forward to meeting him in heaven, you know. That'd be an interesting conversation. He'd probably say to me, Steve, speak a bit slower. I can't understand a word you're saying. <laughs> so just to summarise, Thomas misunderstood. Don't want to hear anyone call him Doubting Thomas anymore, Pete. He, like the others, was discriminated against. And as Christians, we are different. I'm not just doing the Scouser thing. I hate professional Scousers. Mm. Put the accent on. You know what I mean, like... But we are discriminated against, uh, discriminated against in lots of different ways. But we are as Christians quite often. You know, it's getting harder and harder to be a Christian because it seems that everybody else has sort of protected the law against any kind of uh, anything. And yet, like Scousers, as Christians, we don't have that protection because it's assumed that we're all white, middle-aged and bigoted. He asked the awkward question. Ask the awkward question, all right? But don't do it all at once, please. One at a time, and maybe <coughs> one or two a week, all right? So form a queue. But ask the awkward question. Ask your house group leaders. Make them work for a living, okay? Ask one another. Discuss it. Yeah, I never thought about that before. Think, about, think, think out of the box, all right? Think what if. Try and think like someone who doesn't believe. That'll certainly make you think, oh, why do we do that? Oh, gosh, that would look a bit weird. Or, you know, or not. Be real. Be true. Don't live in a fantasy world. Don't believe every report you hear. But if it's true, if you find out, wow, that's fantastic, go with it. Because it's an extraordinary God we worship. And build on it. And finally, work at being loyal and faithful. 
Let it be your hallmark, if you like, that as a Christian, you're known for being loyal, you're known for being faithful, you're known for being true, both to one another and to, the, and to your faith and to, to the Lord, but also in the world generally. See, I can rely on that guy, he's a Christian. She all, she's always there for me. You know why? Because she's a Christian. Quite often, Christians have the opposite. And, you know, a lot of it's the work of Satan. Because people in the world are far worse quite often. Sometimes, though, they're a lot better. But our motivation's different. We can go the extra mile. Because we have the Lord to sustain us. We have his grace.